You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Often we encounter people in this life who desire glory for themselves. Many desire the glory, but few are willing to pay the price. Jesus Christ veiled His glory and took on humiliation that He might glorify the Father. As a result, the Father glorified the Son. Today we look at the time before glory. Join us in Mark chapter 9 verses 2 through 13 as the pastor delivers the sermon, Before Glory. Alright, if you'll take your Bibles out and open up to the book of Mark in chapter number 9. Mark chapter number 9, and we'll begin our reading in verse number 2 this morning. You know, often we encounter people in this life who desire glory for themselves. And glory being that praise, honor, distinction, renown. They may seek this glory in some great military battle. They may seek that glory through a battle in the office or in the business world. Sometimes uh, it might present itself in the form of winning elections and getting high positions of authority. And we know of those people who have those aspirations for glory in those regards. But this desire for glory may even present itself in some small ways where a person just seeks to be noticed or gain recognition. Or, you know, like when you come in to the kids and they prepared a meal, not that they would do that very often for you, but you come in, the kids prepared the meal, and, you know, then one of them wants to speak up. Well, I did the most work, right? Because they want the glory. Well, many desire the glory. But few are willing to pay the price for glory. Jesus Christ himself was very different in this regard. He had the glory. And he laid it aside. He veiled his glory to come like as we are. And we're going to see through our passage today that he then endures suffering. He endures the humiliation before once again receiving the glory. He took on that humiliation that he might glorify the Father. And as a result, the Father glorified the Son. So today that's what we're going to look at from this passage, is that time before the glory. Mark chapter 9, look with me in verse number 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up in a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. 
And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it is written of him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, last week we explored a message about King Jesus and the kingdom as it came. Yet this king did not come in the glory that was expected. This king was born in very humble circumstances, wasn't he? We're not that far removed from our Christmas time celebration and Advent celebration as we thought about that coming of Christ, that first coming. In the flesh, he was born there and laid in a manger, there in that stable in Bethlehem, a very humble birth. And this same king was rejected by his own people. So his first coming was not in some loud, noticeable, glorious way in which he was praised, in which he received honor, in which he was renowned. Quite the opposite. It was very humble, and he was rejected. Now Mark's noting in this passage of this period of time, you'll notice in verse number 2, he says that after six days. Now this is significant, as the other two gospel accounts of this story also mention the time frame. Matthew tells us it's six days. Luke says it's about eight days. But why this is important, this time period was given to us, is because it links us back to what had just taken place, what had just happened, what, we, what we've seen, what we've heard from Mark so far. And so Jesus has been foretelling about his death that's to come. He's been telling his disciples about the suffering that he must endure. In fact, you remember Peter didn't really like that so much. And Peter actually rebuked Christ for that and said, absolutely not. It's not to be that way. And Jesus reminds his disciples, if they want to be followers of him, if they want to be his disciples, then they also must take up their cross daily and follow Christ. They're going to have to follow that same path, that same road of suffering before the glory. If you look back in Mark chapter number 8, remember Jesus had begun to teach them in verse 31 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And when he turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. When he called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same 
shall save it. Again, so many are living for the glory in the here and now. They want to achieve it here and now. And Christ says, you live for my glory now, and you'll see the glory later. Christ must go through the suffering, through the cross, before the crown. And so must we. Now, in our text today in Mark chapter 9, what takes place here on this mountain, this event that we call the transfiguration, this is not a fulfillment of what Jesus said in verse number 1. We talked about this passage last week, but it is a foretaste. It is just a bit of a taste, a wetting of the appetite of what was yet to come. So when Christ is transfigured on the mount, this is not a fulfillment of the kingdom of God coming with power, but it is a taste. They do get a glimpse. They do get a little piece of it and get to see what it's going to be all about. So our text today shows us that glimpse that the disciples received of Christ's glory, but also shows us what he must endure before the final realization of glory. And as his disciples, we must follow him in that way. So let's look at a few things from this passage. First of all, I want you to notice Christ change. Before the glory, there was Christ change in verse number two, that after six days, he taketh with him Peter, James, and John, leadeth them up in a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Now we're told the when, that was six days later, and we talked about the importance of that. We're told the who that was with him. It was Peter, James, and John, just these ordinary fishermen. Isn't it amazing the people that God chooses to see the most extraordinary things? Here are these common fishermen that God has chosen, that Christ has called to go up with him to experience something that no one else had ever experienced, something that no one else had ever seen. They're going to get a glimpse of the glory and the deity of Christ. And these three were going to be instrumental in the establishment of Christ's church. Where did they gather? We're told in verse number two that he leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. Now we don't know for sure exactly which mountain this was. It's quite possible this would have been Mount Hermon. And the reason being because of the proximity to the area of Caesarea Philippi. If you go back in chapter 8, verse 27, you find that Jesus went out and his disciples in the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And so when you consider the area they'd been in, where they were going, and the mountains that were nearby, it's very possible that this was Mount Hermon, which extends some 9,000 feet in elevation. Hermon is recognized in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, as a sacred place, a holy place. And you remember the psalmist talks about that dew of Hermon? Well, that was very common, very prevalent, because there were a lot of changes that was happening with weather at that elevation there. But the dew of Hermon was likened to the unity of brothers. So it's quite possible it was here on this mountain where Jesus, along with these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, where something extraordinary takes place. We're told in verse number 2 that as they were up there on that mountain by themselves, that he was transfigured before them. Now, the word for transfigured here in the Greek is from the verb form mortifeo. And that's where we derive our English term metamorphosis. So some of you probably remember those science experiments maybe way back when. 
when you had the little caterpillars and you saw them, you know, spin the cocoon, the chrysalis, and we, and we watched them and then eventually it burst forth and then a butterfly comes out and we talk about the metamorphosis, the change that took place, the change in form, right? From the caterpillar to the butterfly. And so what's happening here is really a change in form. They're seeing a change in form of Christ right there before them. What an extraordinary event. The root of this is the Greek word mortophos, or morphos, which means to form. So the change here was a change in his form. This word is translated in our King James English as transfigured. Now, the word trans, or that little prefix, has really gotten corrupted in our modern society, okay? The idea of trans means to be across or over. So if you fly over the ocean and go to a foreign country or go to another continent, we said that's like what? What kind of flight are you taking? Yeah. So transportation, or if you're going across the Atlantic, it would be the transatlantic flight, right? That means you're going over or across something. You're going over that ocean. You're going over the Atlantic. And so in our modern society, those who want to call themselves trans are saying they're over and above and across all of these genders and all of these restrictions that are naturally placed upon us by God. But to be transfigured means Jesus moved across or over forms, figures. What's happening here is the deity of Christ is being revealed. This is God in the flesh. But remember, Christ, as we're going to see later in the scripture, was before all time. He is God. And he was in his glory with the Father before the world began. And that glory was veiled as he took on human flesh. He never ceased to be God. Yet he was also man. And so what did man typically see of Christ? They saw the flesh, didn't they? They saw the human form. They saw the man. But for a moment, these disciples experienced that cloaking or veiling of man peeled back. And they saw the glory of who Christ was and his deity revealed. Can you imagine? And we have a marvelous description of this from the word of God. Now, Matthew's account it tells us that Christ's face shone like the sun. Remember who Christ is here talking with. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But there are two people who appear there, right, with Christ. Moses and Elijah. And when you think back to Moses in the Old Testament, Moses has an association with God's glory also, doesn't he? He wanted to see the glory of God, but he could not see the face of God. And so God created a special arrangement so that Moses could see a bit of his glory as he passed by, though he couldn't see the face of God. And you remember what happened to Moses as a result of being in the presence of God and his glory? When Moses come down off the mountain, his face shone, didn't it? So brightly they had to veil his face. Now Moses was not the glory of God. He was simply reflecting the glory that he'd been in the presence of. But there's a big distinction here because Christ himself actually is the glory of God. 
In John chapter 1 and verse 14, we're told that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His, can you give me the next word? What do we behold? We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who wrote this? John. You remember the three people that were up on this Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and who? John. John says, we've seen the glory. We've experienced this glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 3 says, He is the radiance, speaking of Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He set down the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, it was the suffering before the glory, the cross before the crown. So Matthew focuses on that fact that his face shone like the sun. But Mark in here in chapter 9, he focuses on another aspect of this event and this change that took place. Mark focuses upon his raiment or the clothing. Notice what he says in verse 3, And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. So Mark focuses on this shining, exceeding white raiment. Beyond anything that a man could do, in the King James it's the word fuller, in some of your other translations you might have the word launderer. Now, you know, I've got certain places I have to take those shirts if I want them to come back really white, you know, where they're really good at taking care of that. Well, what Mark is saying is the white that was experienced here is something beyond what is normal. Beyond what any person could ever do. Beyond what any person who would clean your shirt to make them very white. They can't make them as white as the whiteness that Peter, James, and John was experiencing. This was like beyond anything you can imagine. But not only what man can do, he even talks about the snow. Exceedingly white as snow. So even what occurs in nature, there's nothing so bright white as what they were seeing in all of nature. In other words, this was something unlike what man can do, what nature can do. This was something totally different. This was not something we can understand or comprehend. It was a white that was shining. It was a light. So what is all of this speaking of? It's talking about the purity that existed in Christ without any blemish, without any fault, without any speck. The person cleaning the shirt couldn't get it that clean. That's how clean he was, right? Even the snow upon the ground can't be that clean. That's how pure he is. But can you imagine this bright white light that they're experiencing? They see the purity of Christ, but it had to be a terrifying sight all at the same time, didn't it? It was mysterious. It was incomprehensible. Unable to really even put into words. But that's who Jesus Christ is. We see a magnificent picture here, don't we? Of Christ. But what is the picture that's painted of Christ today? How do we view Christ? This is not the picture that many want to paint 
of who Jesus is. It's not a picture of this bright white light of purity and holiness and awe that's terrifying and holy. We paint pictures in our praise music these days of Jesus like he's our boyfriend or something, you know, that we're walking around holding hands and loving on. That's a picture that we paint of Jesus. But listen, if you know him, if you've seen him, you will reverence him. You will fear him in his holiness. Even the name Jesus Christ is so casually tossed about in our environment. So carelessly. So flippantly. And especially of those who don't know Christ, they are quick to tell us what he's really like. They're quick to tell us what Jesus really thinks, what Jesus really wants, what Jesus would have done, what he would do in this situation now. But they don't know Jesus. They haven't seen Jesus. He's the one who washes us also, doesn't he? Pure and whiter than snow. A purity we could never produce in ourselves that only he could produce in us. How much more should we live lives of holiness? To be holy as he is holy. When we see that picture of Christ and his holiness, it reveals, as light does, our unholiness in our need for the Savior. So that was Christ's change before them. I want to move to the second thing, though, and that's Christ's conversation. There was a change that took place, but there was also a conversation that took place here in this event in verse number 4. It says, There appeared unto him Elias or Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So there's this conversation that's taking place between Christ and Elijah, and Moses. Can you imagine a conversation like that? He's talking with Elijah and Moses about his suffering, about his rejection, and his death. Luke reveals this in Luke chapter 9, verse 31. He says, "...who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem." So if you want to know, and you don't see it in Mark's gospel, you want to know what Jesus and Elijah and Moses would talk about? They're talking about the death that Christ is about to experience. They're talking about the path to the cross. They're talking about this atonement that he would make for all of mankind's sin. They're talking about the suffering that he would endure. Now, Elijah, we know, was a prophet, right? And the prophets... They pointed to Christ and they pointed to his death. Elijah was that prophet who was caught up in that chariot of fire. But here his feet are now once again touching in the promised land. Moses is the other figure here. Moses was the giver of the law. And the law also pointed to Christ. And the law demanded his death. Interesting note here, while Elijah was caught up in the chariot of fire, and now his feet are touching in the promised land again. Moses, you remember, never set foot in the promised land. This is a first for him. He's getting to experience there on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
But the law had pointed to Christ. The law demanded His death. And Jesus fulfilled that law on your behalf. That's the events they're talking about that was to come. He bore the punishment for our transgression of the law. Now, all of this was known from God by God from the beginning. And he carried out this plan from which we all benefit. So I would ask you this morning, have you been cleansed of your sin? Have you been set free from the curse of the law? Moses and Elijah are there with comfort and confirmation as Jesus is preparing for this death that he would face. I thought about this conversation between these giants. Of course, none compared to Christ himself. But when you think of Elijah and Moses, again, you're thinking of real giants of the faith, aren't you? And when we think about their conversation, the thought occurred to me how empty our conversations tend to be sometimes. When you think about what Moses and Elijah and Christ were talking about, What's the company that we often keep? And what kind of conversations do we have? And I thought about just how empty those can be. Can you imagine their conversation was literally the plan of God? They were discussing God's plan that was in motion and what must be accomplished to bring glory to Him. How often do you converse? Men, how often do you converse with other holy men? How often do you get together and talk about the plans and the things in the Word of God? to encourage one another in the way for the mission that God has for you and what God would have you to do. This was a carrying out of what we're told to do, to provoke one another to love and good works. Here we see it playing out on this mountain. So practically in our lives, we need to learn to begin to live in community with one another, to make time for one another to have real conversations with one another. We don't even have real conversations anymore. We have cell phones. We just get on there and we we put a few little letters that don't even make sense most of the time, right? you got to interpret what each letter stands for. It's a real short response back and forth. The next thing you know, somebody else is mad at someone else because they misunderstood their little LOL or emoji that they put on there, right? We don't even have real conversations anymore. To spend time together as believers, to encourage one another, not just on the Sunday morning, but day in and day out for the mission that God has for us. To remind us that we're on a mission to bring glory and honor to Him. And that's what Moses and Elijah are encouraging Christ in as He reaches this so important of a time. That's what's happening on the mount. So we see Christ change. We see his conversation. Now I want you to look in verse number five. We'll see Christ's commendation or confirmation, if you will. Mark chapter nine, verse five. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, for we wist not, for he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Now, you got to love Peter in this case because you can't really fault him here. But these guys are overwhelmed, as you would imagine. They are overwhelmed and overcome by this display and what they've seen. But as you know about Peter, he, he's got a mouth and he's got to speak all the time about something. And he's in a place where he absolutely does not, and the Bible reveals this, he didn't know what to say. 
I mean, what can you say to this? What can you say to the Almighty standing before you in His glory? What in the world could you say? But Peter can't help himself. He had to say something, so he just babbles some nonsense about why don't we just uh, make some tents or some dwellings for you, Jesus, and for Moses and Elijah. You say, well, that just doesn't even sound sensible. It wasn't. <laughs> he didn't know what to say. didn't know what to do. They were frightened by what was before them. Notice there was a cloud in verse number 7 that overshadowed them. Luke tells us in his account that the disciples were fearful as they entered into this cloud. And then Matthew tells us that they fell on their faces in the midst of this cloud because they were so afraid. So, all three gospel accounts confirm the reaction of these disciples to this change that took place, the conversation that they were hearing. They were fearful. They were afraid. And I'm afraid that we have lost that fear of God and His glory in our churches, in our communities. You know, if we feared God, We'd gather and worship. If we feared God, we would repent of our sin. If we feared God, we'd live lives of holiness. If we feared God, we'd be on our face before Him. That's where those disciples ended up. If our communities feared God, we wouldn't have pride events, drag shows, We wouldn't kill innocent babies. If our communities feared God, we wouldn't tolerate such. Let me be honest with you. The church and pastors of churches are not loving their communities by just sitting by silently and praying. I was told, by the way, this week that that's an approach that we ought to take. And they're going to do what they're going to do. We all just sit aside and pray. That's how we advance God's kingdom. Friend, when we sit by silently, we're not loving our communities. We must love our communities enough to speak out against the abominations, to call for repentance while offering the hope of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. We're told in verse 7 that this cloud overshadowed them. If you remember, this was kind of how Christ came into the world, wasn't it? You remember Mary, that virgin? What happened? We're told from Scripture that the Spirit would overshadow her and she would conceive. This was a demonstration of great power. And as this cloud overshadows them, this demonstration of power is there. They hear a voice in verse number 7. A voice came out of that cloud and said, This is my beloved Son, hear Him. He was commended there before them by the Father. 
The Father confirmed just who they were looking at, who they were talking to, who they were dwelling with day in and day out. This is indeed Christ, the Son of God. He's deity. And so what should your response be? Well, the command of them was this. Hear Him. Hear Him. Listen to what He has to say. His commission to us is to teach others to obey all that He has commanded us. Every single word. We should preach the whole counsel of God, not cherry-picking it, (laughs) not just taking what we like and what we agree with, but to hear all of thus saith the Lord. This whole book is Jesus' word to us. It's not just what you find in there that's in red letters, all right? No, it's all His word. It's all Christ's word for us. Now, Jesus fulfilled the law, but He didn't abolish it. How many of you understand Jesus has still told us, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. None of that's changed. He still said it. It's still his word. It's still applicable for us today. When the apostle Paul wrote, it was still Jesus writing. It was still his word as the apostle wrote under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And so whether it's from the apostle Paul or from the law or from the words that are in red, it's Christ's word and we are to hear him. Preach the whole counsel of God. If you're going to tolerate some of these things that we tolerate today, like, uh, you know, women in the pulpit and salvation by works that can be lost, don't come lecture me about what Christ has said if you buy into these kind of false doctrines. You haven't read what Christ said. Take his whole word. Hear him. He said, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said that. Hear him today. Repent of your homosexuality. Repent of your adultery. Repent of your lying, of your stealing, of your dishonoring parents. Repent of your blaspheming His name. Repent of your lust. Hear Him. Christ's change. Christ's conversation. Christ's condemnation. That moves us to verse 8. Christ's charge. After they experience all this amazing event, and after they've heard this voice, Verse 8 tells us that suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. And they kept saying with themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising from the dead should mean. So they look around. There's nobody else left at the end of this event. It's just Jesus and these three disciples again. And Christ tells them to keep this under their hat. Don't tell anybody else what you've seen. 
until he says, I rise from the dead. So Jesus, once again, is foretelling what is to come, the suffering that's to take place. But the end result is he's not going to stay in the ground. He's not going to stay dead. He's going to rise again. So this plan must be carried out. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. But there's a victory that's at hand. He defeated the enemy on the cross, but he rose victorious as the first fruits of our salvation. And notice the disciples in verse 10, they're questioning amongst themselves, the three of them, because they're not supposed to tell anybody else, right, what took place. So they keep questioning one another. Say, Did you hear what he said there? What's he talking about, this rise from the dead stuff? Doesn't make sense. I don't get it. What's the point he's trying to make? It didn't make sense to him because it didn't fit their picture of what the Messiah was supposed to be or what the Messiah was supposed to do. Same reason why Peter rebuked him before in chapter 8. It didn't fit even the picture of what they had just seen. I mean, look at Christ. He's God. Look at him in his glory. What what does he mean? He's got to rise from the dead. He's going to die? Well, notice his cross. Christ's cross in verse 11. They ask him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things. And he said it not. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come. They have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. So Elijah and the coming kingdom. Elijah had already come. They weren't waiting on Elijah to come again. Jesus, when he makes this statement to his disciples, is referencing John the Baptist, who came in the same spirit as Elijah. How do we know that? Mark chapter 17, verse 13 tells us, when the disciples understood, or then the disciples understood, that he's spoken to them of John the Baptist. So Matthew gives us this glimpse that when Jesus talked about Elijah had come, he's referencing John the Baptist. And the disciples finally realized that. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, as the announcement of John's birth is given, we're told that he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so that was John's job. He was going to come and turn the hearts of the people back. He's going to call them to repentance and prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He came in that same spirit of Elijah with the same preaching and the same message to repent. So John, like Elijah, preached this message of repentance from sin. You know, John, Elijah, and Jesus, they must have been some more judges of people. They were all the time judging people, weren't they? Calling people to repentance. We kind of hear that today. If you call someone to repent, well, who are you to be the judge? You're just judging them. Those who cry out that we are judging are those who are trying to silence the preaching of the truth. That's why they say that. That's why they say, oh, you're just judging. Because that's the attempt to silence you. So you'll shut up. You won't preach it anymore. You won't speak it anymore. But the Bible asks us this question. 
How can they hear without a preacher? How are they to know? We don't tell them. How will they know they need a Savior if we keep acting like there's no such thing as sin? If we just keep saying everything is permissible and anything goes, there's no morality, there's no standard, there's nothing that's out of bounds, then pretty soon people begin to get the idea, I'm not a sinner because there's no such thing as sin. I can be who I think I am. I can do what I want to do and I have no accountability whatsoever because everything goes. This is what happens when the people of God stay silent. We don't say, thus saith the Lord. They're not hearing the preacher. How do they know that they've sinned? This is the reason that Christ had to go to the cross to begin with. Because there really is a such thing as sin, and we are all sinners. We were all condemned and in need of Christ to go to the cross. John was killed for preaching. We've looked at that already in Mark, haven't we? He dared to speak out against the ruler of his time, and by the way, what was happening in his private life. John dared preach against what was happening in the ruler's private life, and he was put to death. So too would the Savior be put to death, just as the prophet's had foretold. And that's what Jesus is telling him. In verse 12, he says he must suffer many things. In verse 13, he said, Elijah indeed come. And again, remember, they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist, but he reminds them that they've done whatever they wanted to him. What did they do? They had him put to death. And that's what Christ would endure. It was a cup that could not pass from him in God's sovereign plan. He was about to endure great agony. There would be no glory until the cross. And we follow him as disciples. We're called to take up our cross. And when you do that, know this, you're going to be rejected just like the prophets were, just like John was, just like Christ was. Don't expect to be popular and don't expect to be accepted by this world when you take up your cross and you follow after Christ. We'll suffer, possibly even die, but those who endure will see the prize. Many want the glory now, but they despise the cross. Friend, there is no shortcut to glory. And then we get to the last thing. And that's Christ's crown. It's not in our text, but as we look at Scripture, we find that this was not the end. Everything wasn't done when Christ suffered and died. That wasn't the end of the story. I mean, just as he told us, he must rise again. But there would be glory awaiting in 1 Peter 1 and verse 10, we're told, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What would follow the suffering of Christ? His glory. His glory. 
In John 17, verse 1, we're told that these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me, thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Even Christ in his own words reminds us that he had the glory. He laid it aside as he came to this earth, and the Father would restore that glory once again. From humiliation to exaltation. As Pete read us this morning from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From the humiliation to the exaltation. And then we find over in 1 Peter that we too will follow through this same process, that we too will go through the suffering before the glory. I won't take the time this morning, but 1 Peter chapter 1, read verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a while, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. This is a reminder, guys, that this suffering that we face now, today, it's temporary. It's temporary. It's just for a short time. It doesn't even mean that day in and day out, all day, it's difficult and it's suffering. You see this kind of with David in the Psalms. It's almost like this kind of ebb and flow in our lives, isn't it? We kind of go through these difficulties and calamities in life. Things can get better for a while and then they they kind of get difficult, but they ebb and they flow. But regardless, it's, it's only a momentary thing. It's only temporary. And so what happens so often is our eyes get distracted by the suffering and the problems and the trials that we forget the later glory. You know, just as Elijah and Moses were reminding Christ, as he approached this suffering and approached this death on the cross, even as he prayed in the garden, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. To see beyond the temporary, to see beyond the suffering, to see the glory. Christ humbled himself and suffered before his glory, and we follow him when we take up our cross and our humiliation and suffering as his follower, with the glory that's before us ever in mind. There is no crown without a cross. Like Christ, we spend our time in this flesh, bringing glory to him, not glory to self. And in due time, he will exalt The disciples saw just a bit of glory 
just a bit of glory, only a taste of what was to come. As it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, a reminder of what Christ endured for us. I pray for those this morning who have heard the preaching of your word, whom you're calling to repent today. May they repent and trust in the sacrifice of Christ for them. God, encourage us as your people today to see past the difficulties of life, to not be consumed with this world nor the glory that the world offers us now. Just as even your son was tempted with that glory ahead of its time, God, help us to be faithful in living our lives not for self, but in taking up our cross and living for your glory. Lord, in whatever it is you called us to do, from our various vocations, Lord, whether we're engineering or we're farming or we're preaching or we're raising children, to do it for your glory. Father, be honored in the remainder of our service today. I pray that we would uplift you in a way that truly brings you the glory you deserve. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.